Welcome to the Dream Job System, the only podcast that provides proven tangible strategies to help you land a job you love without traditional experience and without applying online. Get ready to level up your job search with your host, Austin Belsack. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Dream Job System podcast. I'm your host, Austin Belsack, and this is our monthly Ask Austin Anything episode where I source questions from all of our listeners just like you, and I pick a handful to answer live right here on the podcast. So if you want me to answer one of your questions in a future Ask Austin Anything, all you have to do is head to cultivatedculture.com forward slash AAA. It's the letter A three times. You can submit your question there and I will take a look at it and feature it on the podcast. This month, we have five awesome questions from awesome listeners that really run the gamut from psychology and job searching, from burnout to imposter syndrome. We talk about how to set up those LinkedIn carousels that you might be seeing all over LinkedIn. We'll talk about starting up a coaching business or a side hustle and quantifying specific achievements on your resume for a non-traditional background. So it's gonna be a lot of fun here. Let's start at the very top. Our first question comes from Adam, who's asking, how do you fight imposter syndrome? And do you see it having a direct relationship with self-confidence? So the first piece here is imposter syndrome absolutely has a direct relationship with self-confidence, right? If you feel like an imposter, it's really, really hard to be confident. And what ends up happening is you feel like you have to fake the confidence. So overcoming imposter syndrome is a part of life. It's a big part of success as well. But what I'll say is that the goal actually shouldn't be overcoming. It should be learning to accept and learning to understand where those feelings are coming from. See, the thing about imposter syndrome or a lot of these other things that pop up in our brains, whether it's anxiety or stress or these other behaviors that we have, eliminating them completely is actually a bad thing. And it's really not possible if we're being honest, right? There's no way we could live in a world where there is zero anxiety. And honestly, would we want to live in that world? Because sometimes anxiety can serve us, right? Anxiety is the reason that you prepare and prepare and prepare for that job interview. Anxiety is the reason that you think multiple times about how you are going to have this tough conversation with somebody that you care about. Anxiety is the reason that you get up and you go finish that presentation that you've been putting off for weeks. Because if you don't do that, if that anxiety wasn't there, then you would basically lose everything. You'd lose your relationships. You would lose your job. You would lose your possessions. You'd lose all this stuff because you wouldn't have any anxiety about doing anything about it, right? So there is this balance and there's a reason that those feelings exist. Those feelings exist in order to serve us in limited quantities. But what tends to happen is we push them way, way beyond that threshold and then they start to damage. They start to be a disservice to us. So it's the same thing with imposter syndrome here. And typically what I found is that folks who are suffering from imposter syndrome are are suffering from that because they actually have slightly better awareness about themselves and their surroundings, right? There's this thing in psychology called the Dunning-Kruger effect, which basically is a graph of your knowledge and the way that you feel. And essentially what it shows is that when you are first starting out in a field, you take, you know, let's say some some introductory courses, or you have a couple of conversations with people. And at first, you didn't know anything about this field. But now you start to learn, right? You're starting to learn the, the fundamentals, you learn these high level concepts, they all really make sense on paper. And all of a sudden, you see this spike in your perceived knowledge, you feel like you really know a lot about this field. 
And then what happens is you dive deeper. And the more that you start to peel back the layers on these areas, the more that you start to peel back the things that are going on, you start to realize, oh, well, here are all these issues with this particular concept. And here are all these challenges. And here are all these multiple ways to approach it. And then you start to realize that you have to explore each of those individually. And so the graph actually decelerates, it really drops significantly. And your perceived knowledge or or the way that you think you or the way you see yourself rather, uh, in terms of being an expert on the subject drops substantially. And you start to think, wow, I actually don't know anything about this field. Like everybody else knows more than I do. I don't actually know anything. And I, and I just thought that I did. And then eventually, as you stick through this, as you continue to learn and, and over time, the curve starts to trend back up. So it's a really interesting little graph. It's worth reading more about. You can just Google Dunning-Kruger effect and you'll you'll be able to get you know all the information that you want on it. But that's essentially what's going on here is that when most of us experience imposter syndrome, it tends to be because there is a disconnect between the reality in front of us, the things that that we want to do or are doing, and where we're at in our belief of our own abilities. And that tends to be in that middle phase of the Dunning-Kruger effect where we've gone past the initial kind of entry-level point. You know, we've, we understand the high-level concepts and all of that. Now we've moved beyond to explore, you know, the layers there, the different challenges, the different avenues, the different questions, and all these things that, that are, you know, coming to light as we start to peel back the layers. That's really where the imposter syndrome starts to come into play. So for example, if you're switching industries, right? And you start to look at all these these different fields and you maybe take some courses and then you start to feel like, oh, I, I get digital marketing now. I understand what it looks like on a high level. And then you start to go have conversations with people who are working in that industry. And these people are asking you, well, you know, what, is, what do your conversion rates look like? And what happens when you break out the demographics in this way? And have you thought about, you know, multiplying your ad sets and all these different other manners? And now all of a sudden you're like, whoa, I've never heard of any of these terms. I have to go look them up. I don't know anything. Like, what am I doing? I'm an imposter even having this conversation, that's where this tends to come into play. So it's important to recognize all of those things. It's important to recognize what's happening here. But it's also important to recognize that pretty much everybody suffers from this. So if you look at the data, the American Psychological Association actually ran a study and found that 82% of people face feelings of imposter syndrome. 82%. That means eight of 10 people in any given room are suffering from some sort of imposter syndrome. So that basically means that you are not alone. And the number one thing that I would say when it comes to overcoming imposter syndrome is talking about it, getting out there and finding folks who are peers, folks that you respect, people that are ahead of you, also people that you respect. Respect is the the number one criteria here, but people who are your peers, people who are a few steps ahead of you on the journey, and just being honest with them, saying, you know, hey, Austin, uh, I don't know if you ever felt this in your journey, but right now, you know, I'm, I'm feeling X or I'm worried about Y, you know, have you ever had those feelings? And what you're going to find is that eight out of 10 people are likely going to say, yeah, I have had those feelings. I'm feeling them right now. And then you start to realize that you're not alone. And this is actually a natural thing, right? When 80% of people are having a feeling, it's a natural thing, right? Because most people are dealing with this exact issue. So once you start to realize that, it becomes a little bit easier to, you know, give yourself a little bit of wiggle room, give yourself a break. You realize that not everybody else has it figured out and nobody's perfect and we're all just sort of winging it. And this is the biggest realization that I've had through my growth journey. You know, I've been fortunate enough to end up meeting a lot of the folks that I looked up to and idolized when I was starting my business and starting my content creation journey. And what I've realized as I've become better friends with most of them is that 
they are still winging it. They have still really have no idea what they're doing. They've just had a lot more reps and a lot more shots on goal. And they've created a lot of opportunities through a volume game and through having a system of failing a lot and learning from those failures. But even now, when you ask them, you know, where they're going over the next five years, they typically, if they give you a super, super specific answer, um, frankly, I, I would be cautious of that because a lot can change in five years. I mean, just look at what happened over the last five years, right? A lot of us didn't predict any of that happening. So these folks uh, typically will say, you know, I, I really, I think this is the direction that I'm going in. I'm working towards that, but I really have no idea. And and those tend to be the most self-aware people. So that's how you overcome it is by talking about it. And one other place to do this, I always recommend this. Again, I, I'm not a medical expert. This isn't medical advice. But if uh, therapy is in your budget, I always recommend it just because what's going on here is mental, right? It's it's the space between your ears. And having somebody who is an expert in helping you process what's going on there and unpack it, it's one of the best investments you can make. I say time and again that working with my therapist is literally the best money that I've spent on myself, on my business, pretty much on anything. And it's helped me unpack a lot of this um, because I've dealt with plenty of feelings of imposter syndrome as, as I've been going through my career as well. So I know that was a long answer with a lot of stuff packed into it, but basically what we're looking to do here is become aware of these feelings and where they're coming from, and then find a way to converse with other folks about them, whether that is you know peers you respect, uh, people a few steps ahead of you that you respect, therapists, friends, whatever, Talk to these people about what you're feeling. Talk to these people about how they've dealt with it, what they're going through. And then you start to realize that this is actually a normal thing. And now you can move forward. You can give yourself that wiggle room. So that is a long-winded answer, but hopefully that helps unpack a couple of things here, Adam. And I really appreciate that question because anything mental health-wise is always worth talking about in my book. And that's a great segue into our next question from Richie, who's saying, reaching out to companies, finding roles, and figuring out creative ways to build relationships is mentally exhausting. What advice can you give that will help the job search burnout? So another great question here focused on mental health. And I really want to dig deeper into this, too, because job search burnout is real. The job search process is exhausting, right? It's full of rejection. It's full of frustration, self-doubt, and anxiety. And if you don't have systems in place to keep your mental health in check, you're going to burn out. And that likely means that you're going to end up settling for a job that really wasn't aligned with your criteria, that isn't really what you want. And that starts this vicious cycle where you then have to jump back into the job search in six months or 12 months, and you're not happy at this new career. And then every day that you show up to work is also a struggle, and it's really hard to recover your mental health. So setting these boundaries early is so, so, so important. And I really like to set this up a few ways. So the first is setting the right expectations for yourself in the process. We've done a couple of polls on LinkedIn and other creators I know have done this as well. And they basically asked folks, you know, how quickly did you think you would land a job when you started job searching? And by far, the largest two responses are two months and one month. So people, the vast majority of people, I think it was something like 70 or 80% of people thought that they would land a job within two months. But if we go look at the data for the average DIY job search, it's actually closer to six to eight months long. So there's a big discrepancy of four to six months there between how long people think it will take to get a job and how long it actually takes them to get a job. And life is all about expectations. If we expect something to happen and it doesn't happen, we are disappointed. We are thrown off. We have to recover, right? And it 
sort of just messes up our equilibrium. So the most important thing here is to go into the job search setting the right expectations, even if they are very, very low. So for example, when you go out there and you find benchmark data for the job search, I would look at that and then I would try to cut it in half. So if we're applying for jobs online and the data says you have about a 2% chance of getting in the door, I would expect 1% for yourself. If you're reading an article on you know cold outreach for networking and it says you'll get a 30% response rate, I would set the expectations for 15 This is a really good habit to get into because you set your expectations low, which means if they're met, then you're in good shape. You know, you're rocking and rolling with this plan that is, you know, hitting these low expectations and you're not feeling like your your expectations are misaligned or mismanaged and you don't get all the stress that comes with that. But if you exceed those expectations, which it should be easier to do because they are lower, right? They're 50% lower than the benchmark. Then you're actually feeling good. You're feeling like you're making faster progress and that's going to allow you to keep your spirits up. So this is a huge thing. I know it's hard to do up front. You look at some of these numbers, you know, 2% is rough as it is, and you cut it to one, and that's even more rough for online apps. But it is really, really important to set those expectations early. The second thing to do here is to pay attention to your energy. When we think about the job search activities that you are embarking on, that, that you are enacting every day, they really fit into two buckets. There are energy drainers and energy creators. For example, sitting down and writing a cover letter is probably a massive energy drainer. Whereas if you go out and you have a cup of coffee with somebody that you already have a relationship with, who's working at one of your dream companies, who's excited to share information with you, that could be an energy creator because you already have some progress there. You already have some traction. This is somebody you're looking forward to speaking to, and there's some hope on the other side of that. So what I want you to do is make a list of every activity that you are undertaking in the job search, every little thing that you're doing. And I want you to label each as a creator or a drainer. And then for the drainers, I want you to try to automate, delegate, or eliminate them, and then double down on creators. So for example, you know, ChatGPT is out, and I posted on this a lot. But if writing resumes, if writing cover letters, if those are energy drainers for you, go leverage ChatGPT to take care of 80% of the baseline work there. And yes, you still need to come in, personalize this yourself, et cetera, but you can take care of most of that. And then you can reallocate that time to going out and doing more of these energy creating activities. And when you focus more on activities that create energy, you're just going to have an easier time getting through the search. You're also going to be happier and more effective as well. The third piece here is to find support. So tough journeys are even harder when we try to go it alone. One of the easiest things that you can do is find a community of people on the same path. And that could just be a few friends. That could be a professional community. It could even just be a career coach. Or as I mentioned before, it could be a therapist. But what you really need to do is find somebody or a group of people who kind of gets where you're at and is either on the same journey or understands the journey and is willing to talk to you about it. So whatever that looks like for you, you should make it a priority so you have that outlet and you can chat with these folks. And then most importantly, you need to carve out me time and also time for unplugging. One of the most unhealthy aspects and mindsets of the job search is this idea that if we're not job searching with every minute of our free time, we're wasting time. We're letting other people down. And this is a marathon, right? We, we can't be expected to sprint the entire marathon. We need to take some breaks. We need to walk through the water stations and catch up and recharge our batteries because you can't pour from an empty cup. So I would think about the things that fill your cup, whether it's exercising, reading, meeting friends for dinner, making art, watching TV, whatever it is, I would make a point to spend at least 30 minutes a day on those things. And when those things stop working, because sometimes 30 minutes a day isn't enough, you need to completely unplug. You need to take a day off or two or three or even a full week. And trust me, 
I know that feels scary. I know you're going to tell yourself, I'm not working hard enough or I'm wasting time if I take a week off. But if that burnout is creeping in, you need to take that space because otherwise you are not going to overcome that burnout. It's just going to get worse and worse. And this whole thing is going to be harder. So if you need somebody's permission to do that, you have mine. And you can tell anybody else that, you know, this guy you follow on LinkedIn or, you know, who you, you're on his newsletter or whatever, he's a career coach. He told you that you can take the week off. You can absolutely pin that on me. So Richie, thank you so much for asking that question. I hope that answer was helpful and gave you, you know, a few bits and pieces of tactical advice that you can leverage to keep your mental health in a good place so you can keep pushing forward and actually land the job that you're excited about rather than settling for something that you're not so excited about and ending up right back in the same situation in six to 12 months. Our third question here comes from Renee, who's asking, how do you make your LinkedIn carousel posts? So you may have noticed this on uh, my LinkedIn, if you follow along there, where at the beginning of the year, I started sharing a new type of content, which is essentially a carousel of images where you kind of swipe through them, right? And they, they look like um, screenshots of tweets. And the reason that I started doing that is because um, what I had seen actually was traditional text posts were just really dipping in their engagement um, and their reach and, and all these other metrics through the back half of last year year. And I tried to test out a bunch of stuff. I have this whole content audit process. And nothing that I had done in the past was um, getting me the results that that I was looking for. So I went out and I, I applied that content an analysis system across the board um, to other creators and to the platform in general. And what I noticed were these tweet threads that I had seen earlier in the year, but they were still around, they were still gaining traction. And I decided to, you know, build out a content system around them. So the way that I make them is uh, using Twitter, uh, using a tool called TweetPick, uh, that's T-W-E-E-T-P-I-K.com, uh, a tool called Canva, and that's pretty much it. So basically what I do is I write a thread on Twitter. Um, so I write a, a post, um, which is just multiple tweets in a row on Twitter, and I post it. And then I use TweetPick to turn those tweet images, or those tweets rather, into images. So I save them all down as image files. And TweetPick is really nice because it makes these really, really high quality versions of those tweets that look really nice, that look really clean and high quality. And then in Canva, what I do is I open up a canvas that's the same size as the LinkedIn carousel dimensions. They actually have a, a pre-templated setup for that. So you can just choose the LinkedIn carousel dimensions. I make the background black. I drop in all the images. I just adjust the sizing um, to make it look really nice. Uh, and then I export it as a high quality PDF because on LinkedIn for these, these specific post format that you're talking about here, that is actually a document upload. So basically what I do is turn it into a high quality PDF and then I upload it to LinkedIn. Now, if you're not creating content on Twitter, uh, that's totally fine. You can do this all in Canva. What I would recommend that you do is make a dummy Twitter profile so that you can put up a profile picture in your name. You can even pay for the verification and for, you know, actually you don't need to pay for the verification because you can do that on TweetPick. So ignore that. You can have your profile picture and your name and, and your little handle. Uh, and then what you can do is take a screenshot of that or use TweetPick. You can share a dummy tweet. You can pull that out in TweetPick and then you can crop out the content and you can just use that header of your profile picture and your handle and your name. And then you can write the content right below it in Canva and mimic the style of you know what everybody else is doing who is sharing on Twitter. So you absolutely don't need to be consistently posting on Twitter in order to create this type of content. But then all you're going to do is spin it up in, in Canva. You're going to export it as a high quality PDF. You will upload it to LinkedIn. And that is exactly how you make those carousels. So hopefully that is helpful, Renee. Thanks for asking. Our next question comes from Jordan, who says, when you first started offering your coaching uh, or side businesses in general, how did you know what was fair in terms of pricing? And when did you know it was time to increase it? So this is a great question because pricing is one of the hardest things for anybody to do when it comes to starting a business or a side hustle or anything else. 
So there's a little bit of a process here. And the first thing that that I always look to do when I'm trying to set my pricing is to go out there and find 10 or 15 competitors, people or entities that are offering a similar product. And I go look at their pricing and I go look at what they're offering. And I try to align that to what I plan to offer. So for example, you know, if they charge, let's say, uh, $50 an hour and they're offering A, B, C, and D things, if I'm also offering A, B, C, and D things, well, now I kind of have a ballpark to work in. But I'm, if I'm only offering A and B, well, now I can see, okay, how much are those worth? And I'm missing two elements here. You know, how much are those two elements worth? And what you'll be able to see is as you look at this across 10, 15, 20 different businesses or competitive products, you're going to start to see these fluctuations in price, these fluctuations in offerings. And this is really helpful because it gives you a really good sense of how each one of those individual criterion in the service or the product is priced. And then you you can start to figure out your initial pricing. Now, I personally like to come in low when I'm starting out and I haven't done this before because my goal at the very beginning is to get clients. If you're going for you know all the dollars and maximizing your price up front, you're going to leave a lot on the table because there's still so much about this business that you likely haven't figured out. So you're better off underpricing yourself at the very beginning, getting clients in the door and learning as much as you possibly can from those clients. Because as you talk to them, you're going to understand how the service and the product that you've created is resonating with them. And then you can use that feedback to improve your product, to tweak it. And eventually, as you refine it, as it gets better, as your outcomes improve, then you start to raise your prices because it aligns with these better outcomes. The other thing that you want to look at with raising your pricing is your threshold, right? Your demand. So for me, when I started career coaching, I went and looked at everybody else and I saw a lot of other folks for the one-off sessions were charging, um, I think they were charging in the ballpark of like 100 to 125 bucks an hour. So I came in much lower than that. I came in at about, I think, 50 or, or $70 an hour. And then I told myself, uh, at once I book out five clients at this price point, I'm going to increase it. And I basically just kept rinsing and repeating that. So as I refined my offering, and as I got more clients in the door, every time I had five people book at a price point, I would increase the price by, you know, 25 bucks, and then it was 50 bucks, and then it was 100 bucks. And I basically kept doing that working my way up until I found the sweet spot where uh, the value that I was sharing was was worth the price that, that I was putting out there, but it wasn't so high that it wasn't accessible to people. And that's really how you find the sweet spot here. So there's a bunch that goes into this. There's a lot of psychology and articles and stuff like that. But the most simple way to go about it is look at what everybody else is doing. Come in a little bit below that for, you know, an equivalent offering or service. See what your demand looks like. You know, try to learn and focus on getting people in the door versus maximizing your profit margins up front. And then as you start to learn more about what people want, you can increase your prices. And as your demand is, you know, continuing to hold up, you can increase your prices as well. Our last question here comes from Lisa. She's asking, how do I quantify the achievements of a hospice CNA with 10 plus years as a daycare owner and Airbnb owner by using keywords when customizing my resume for a sales development rep and sales engineer roles? So one of the reasons that I wanted to talk about this is because we speak a lot about including quantifiable metrics and outcomes in your resume. And the number one next question we get is, well, I'm in insert job title here. It's not a numbers focused role. So how do I do that? And I just wanted to share a couple of options here that will give you an idea of what this looks like for somebody who actually has a pretty diverse set of experience here, but is sort of making a non-traditional jump from, you know, whether you choose the hospice CNA or being a daycare owner or an Airbnb owner into a sales development role here. So what I would think about is each of these in, in 
in a single bucket or in, in different buckets, rather in individual buckets. We have your, your hospice CNA setup, we have your daycare setup, and then we have your Airbnb setup. So for the hospice CNA setup, what I always like to think about, and just generally what I like to think about is, you know, we want to think about revenue, we want to think about scope, so budget or, you know, number of team members or number of patients or clients or whatever it is. Um, we can think about timelines and expectations there. We can think about productivity. Did we increase productivity? Did we reduce inefficiencies, et cetera? These are all different ways for us to quantify things. So for the hospice CNA piece, we could think about the number of patients that you worked with, right? We could think about the number of staff that you engaged with or worked with or, or even managed if that was the position that you were in. You could talk about the reduction in errors. You could also talk about patient satisfaction, right? How happy were your patients? How did you quantify that? And the way that you tie that back to sales is um, one easy way is is the patient satisfaction, right? If you are keeping your customers happy, whether they are a patient uh, or you know somebody that you're selling to, having the ability to build those relationships and, and keep those numbers high is is something that's key in sales, right? Sales is is really heavily based off of relationships and customer satisfaction. Um, so that is one really really good way to to think about this. For daycare, same kind of setup, right? number of little ones in, in your room or a number of little ones in the daycare, uh, the number of team members that were also in your room that you're working with or number of team members in your daycare. You could think about parent satisfaction. You could think about retention rates. You could think about how many parents sent their, their second kids or third kids back to this daycare. And you could quantify that by looking at the tuition, right? How much does the daycare cost? And how many you know kids are in these classes and then how 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 well are you retaining them and you can look at all of this and you can actually back it out to real numbers and this is the same thing you know with sales right we want to keep our our clients satisfied and then we want to upsell them we want to make sure that they're telling their friends or in this case that they're sending their second or third or fourth however many kids back to that same daycare right so that's another way to think about this and then for airbnb pretty similar setup. So you can think about, you know, your your price increases, how you price things here and, and use that to maximize your revenue growth. You can talk about the, the revenue that you generated and how you grew that. You can talk about average reviews. You can talk about customer satisfaction. And you can also talk about the marketing and sales that you did here. Because at the end of the day, right, Airbnb is a marketplace. And so basically what we're doing in Airbnb is we are uh, trying to sell our our property or or whatever it is to you know people who are looking at us and a bunch of competitors. So there's another you know really heavily sales focused aspect to this as well. So hopefully you can see how we can come up with an, a bunch of different numbers and measurable metrics that we can include on a resume here, and how we might be able to align them to a role that is very different than the roles that this person is in here. So Lisa, really appreciate you asking that question. And that about does it for this month's Ask Austin Anything. So thank you all so much for tuning in. And if you want me to answer one of your questions in the future, all you have to do is go to cultivatedculture.com forward slash AAA. That's the letter A three times. You can submit your question there. I look at all of them every month. I pick a couple to answer here. And I will see you right back here for the next iteration in April. That's it for today. Catch you in the next episode of the podcast.